All right, we continue discussing what does righteousness look like, and tonight the focus is that there is joy in living righteously. So why is it important to understand what true righteousness looks like? There are many answers that can be given. Tonight we focus on just one, and that is that true righteousness is liberating, and pursuit of false righteousness is wearisome. There's joy in serving Jesus, as the hymn says, and there's a reality to that when we understand what righteousness really looks like. But if we don't understand what righteousness looks like, then we're always trying to please God in a way that uh, comes up short. We are dissatisfied. We are unfulfilled. Uh, we feel guilty. And uh, life is filled with a bunch of do's and don'ts that become extremely wearisome. The righteousness that the scribes promoted was, in fact, wearisome. Matthew 23, starting at verse 1, it states, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So here's this picture of, a, of a, a works righteousness that is very oppressive. It's like a heavy weight upon the shoulders in which they are unwilling to remove. The righteousness that Jesus promoted, however, was refreshing and fulfilling. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Speaking of that burden that the Pharisees had placed upon them. They are, worry in their, they are weary in their religious activities. They are feeling burdened. They are not able to rejoice in God or the worship of him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. That's in capital letters because it's a quote from the Old Testament. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So true righteousness is a joy to fulfill where false righteousness is wearisome. So in the Old Testament, as we go back there, we find that God had not wearied Israel through his requirements. <coughs> In Micah chapter 6, starting at verse 1, it says this. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your cause before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. The picture here is that God is in a court of law, and he invites his people to bring accusation against him, for he finds a fault with them, and he calls on the mountains to bear witness, okay? He calls upon the mountains to, to judge in this matter. Here's the indictment, verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? And the word here is to wear out. Same word is found in Genesis chapter 19, verse 11. We were in that passage and looking at Sodom. And if you remember the account, 
It says in Genesis 19.11, and they, that is the angels, uh, struck with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, those individuals that came and asked for those men to be brought out so that they could know them, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. That's the word that is used in our text for to be wearied, to wear themselves out. False religion wears people out. It grows old. It grows tiresome. And so God says, what have I required of you that would wear you out, that would cause you just to throw up your hands in despair and want to quit or just become so frustrated in trying to obtain righteousness that you just want to pack it in and not have anything to do with God or worship or uh, his, his glory. So, number one, God defends the demands that he placed upon his people. He begins by noting what he does not require. The people at best had not understood God's demands and at worst had misrepresented and corrupted God's demands. Did the Lord require thousands of sacrifices from an individual? Micah 6 6 and 7. What shall I, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Did he ask for thousands of burnt offerings? No, he didn't. But it's interesting that on a few occasions, they actually did bring thousands of offerings. If you remember on the day in which the temple was uh, consecrated, dedicated. They offered thousands of offerings. Did God ask for that? No. Did he require that? No. But that is the way in which they sought to bring glory to him. The motivation was right. But that's not what he was looking for. That's not what he had asked for. Did the Lord require the forfeiting of all of one's assets? Notice verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Is that what he asks of us? Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. The thought here is that everything belongs to God. Anything that we give to him, he already owns. We are not making any sacrifice by giving up for God. And it's interesting that man often tries to please God by what they give up in order to serve him. Think of Lent, for example, in preparing to uh, celebrate the death and resurrection of the Lord. Many, many churches practice Lent, which is a, a time of introspection. It's a time of dedication, renewal. That's all very good. 
but oftentimes it's associated with giving up something. And so just before Lent, there is Fat Tuesday, and you stuff yourself with donuts, and then you give up donuts, or you give something else up in order to worship God. He doesn't ask for that kind of stuff. Okay? And it's interesting that you know we kind of chuckle at Ramadan, in which people give up and then they gorge themselves, and we look at that, but sometimes even in Christian circles, there are things that are very similar to that. And people try to gain pleasure or try to gain approval from God by what they give up. C. Did the Lord require the sacrifice of children? Of course he didn't. Verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The Moabites did offer human sacrifices to their God. When the king of Moab saw all that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering for the wall. Remember where the Moabites come from. Remember that Lot, who was a righteous man, is the father of the Moabites. They knew better. But here they are thinking that they are going to gain God's approval by making the greatest sacrifice that one could make. Offering up their child. The Israelites were forbidden to offer human sacrifices. Deuteronomy 12, 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Okay? Worship me the way that I require. Don't take it away and don't add to it. Don't add to it. But many times, in Christian circles, people will fight that things would not be taken from the Scriptures, but don't fight equally as hard that things be added to the Scriptures. Okay? If you want to make added man-made rules, many times that's looked on with great approval. That's great. You know, we can, we can say things that the scripture does not say. Okay, for example, uh, it's a sin to dance. You shall not dance. You're going to look in vain in the scripture to find that. But we accept that, okay, as good and, and right and something that we should certainly stand for. But... That's not what the scripture says. There's enough to be worried about in what the scripture teaches. Number three, however, on occasion the Israelites did, in violation of the law, actually offer human sacrifices. They entered into human sacrifices when they worshiped false gods. Jeremiah 19.5, and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal. Okay, So they forsook 
the true worship of God, worship Baal, and of course a part of Baal, a part of Baal worship was the offering of sacrifices. But then we find in B, the kings of Israel offered human sacrifices when they entered into a synchristic uh, worship, syncretistic, meaning that they borrowed from other religions and mixed what true Judaism taught and what these false religions taught. They, they tried to bring them together. Okay? They, they, they tried to incorporate what the Word of God taught with what other religions taught. For example, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah's father had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Now notice verse 4. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem will I put my name. So now, in the temple, come these places of sacrifice. Verse 5. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So now in God's house, when people came to worship God, they are actually offering sacrifices, human sacrifices, in God's house. Verse 6. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. When we don't understand what righteousness looks like, even in the name of God, atrocities can actually be performed. I use dancing, that's not an atrocity. But actual atrocities can be performed. When we don't understand what righteousness looks like, it can lead to terrible things. Christians have murdered doctors that perform abortions. Are we for abortion? Of course not. But in God's name, it was thought that the right thing to do would be to kill a doctor that would perform abortion. When you leave the scriptures in the dust, almost anything can be justifiable. Almost any action can be seen as commitment or duty in relationship to God. This is not what God has required. What a blessing it is to be able to serve 
the true and living God. That our God does not require of us what some other fanatical individuals think is righteous. You know, I feel for those jihadists that think that they are serving God by terrorism, by becoming a living bomb and blowing themselves up and thinking that they are in some way pleasing Allah and making the ultimate sacrifice. That's sad. That is really sad. And we ought to rejoice tonight that our God is not looking for that kind of action. Rather, number two, what God has demanded of his people is not grievous at all. God had previously revealed what was right. Micah 6.8, he has told you, old man, what is good. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 22 says, For in that day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. Now, the sacrifices were ultimately given as a picture of the uh, work of the Lord Jesus Christ who would die on the cross. But those sacrifices were given, and they were instructed as to how they were to be done, where they were to be performed, and uh, the worship of God. But the Jewish people oftentimes changed what God said about those sacrifices, and it became wearisome. And it became uh, a hardship. God had also previously revealed what he demanded of his people. Micah 6, 8. Oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, here, and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I commanded uh, you today for your good. So now I'm going to slow down. God's demands for righteousness can be summed up in three simple and delightful ways. This is the summation of what God requires in the Old Testament. What does God require? First, God demands that his people act in a just manner. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Number one, to do justice. Or as uh, written in the NIV, but to do justly. To do justly is to act with equity, fairness, and deference to all regardless of social status or function. Number one, they are to see to it that people receive justice in commerce. I'm just giving some examples now of what justice looks like. Leviticus 19.35, you shall not do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, a just hinge. In other words, you are not 
to rob anyone by having a scale that registers 100 pounds when it's only 80 pounds. You are to be honest in your dealings with all people. It wasn't just that they were to be honest with the Jews, but they were to be honest with everyone that they, they met with business. God wants justice. They are to see to it that people receive justice in the court of law. Verse 8, you shall take no bribe. Why? For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are on the right. You shall not oppress a widow. You shall, not, <clears throat> you shall know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. They are to be like God, right? Be ye holy, for I am holy, God says. They are to be like God who does not take a bribe. For Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial, he takes no bribe. Holiness is to look like God. Be there to be like God who does not favor the rich and the powerful over the poor and defenseless. Deuteronomy 10.18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. If you look back on page 5, at the bottom, Exodus 23, verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You shall know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You're to be like God. God gives justice to all. We know our court system is unjust. We know that rich people are treated differently than people who are poor. We know that many times money can get people off. We know that people with great power are treated differently from those that don't have power. So Deuteronomy 10.19 says, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. They are to have a sense of moral obligation to treat others the way that God had treated them and how they would want to be treated. It's the golden rule. It's what is taught in the New Testament. Love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's just a part of what justice is. That's how we're to act. B, God demands that his people love to demonstrate kindness. Micah 6, 8. What does God, uh, uh, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Number one, to do justice. Number two, to love kindness. Or as translated in the NIV, to love mercy. To love mercy adds the spirit of generosity, loyalty, and graciousness to all the acts of justice and assistance. Let me say that again. To love mercy adds the spirit of generosity, loyalty, and graciousness to all the acts of justice and assistance. It addresses the spirit in which justice is performed. Justice is not to be harsh, vengeful, or cruel. Justice is not to be vindictive, but free and helpful. 
justice is to defend those who are otherwise defenseless. It is the attitude that's to temper justice. God is just. And at the same time, God is merciful. God's justice is tempered by his mercy. Okay? So that in God's justice, sin had to be punished. Sin had to be dealt with. But in his justice, it is tempered by mercy. So what does he do? Sends his own son to die on the cross so that he himself would bear the punishment of the justice that was required so that he could show mercy and compassion upon the sinner. And we should never, ever forget, we should never, ever forget that we who are believers, we who are privileged to be the elect, that God offers salvation to every single human being. And God is merciful to all. Three times, it says in the book of Ezekiel, three times, just to make it absolutely clear, absolutely certain, three times in the book of Ezekiel, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no delight in executing justice. You know, there are a lot of people who delight, yes, delight, when justice is done. There are occasions where, you know, you'll you'll read in newspapers where someone is going to uh, experience a death penalty and there will be people camping outside the prison. And when that person goes to the death chair and is ultimately killed, the crowd outside rejoices. Rejoices. God does not rejoice at the death of the wicked. We should not rejoice at the death of the wicked. We ought to feel for they are going to an eternal place of torment. We should not delight in the death of the wicked. I found it extremely interesting. As I said last week, there was, uh, as a result of the attacks on Paris, many prayers were offered on the internet. And what struck me was how diversified those prayers were, how different those prayers were, and especially the difference of tone. The difference of tone. I read one prayer last week that I thought was extremely appropriate. 
There were prayers that I thought were inappropriate, that I did not offer. And one of the common themes in the prayers was that we should pray for justice, that these individuals pay for what they had done. And that in that justice that those that had suffered would be comforted. We should pray for comfort. But it's really a secular idea that we would be comforted and take joy. at the death and damnation of those that have done evil. Justice that's tempered with mercy. Thirdly, closely related, God demands that his people walk with him humbly or as the ESV states, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To walk is a Hebrew idiom for how one lives one's life, thus equivalent to lifestyle. Humility is the antithesis of pride. We mentioned that in Ezekiel, when it was talking about Sodom and so on, it started off with the first sin was pride. Here's the antithesis. Okay, To righteousness is walking humbly with God. Humility is the antithesis of pride. The core of pride is self-reliance. The essence of humility is faith and reliance upon God. Therefore, to walk humbly with God is to live a life of simple faith and trust in God. Not a life of independence. Not a life of <clears throat> establishing for ourselves what is right or wrong, but looking to God. Number two, when we come before God, we must realize it is not so much what is in our hand that we bring to him, but what is in our hearts. Luke chapter 18, verse 11. The Pharisees, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Now, now listen to this. Because the Pharisee is offering a prayer of thankfulness. Here we are. It is a Thanksgiving Sunday. And we have been thanking God. Here is a man who thanks God. For what? I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust. Here's our thought of what does the Lord require of you? Justice. I thank you, O God, that I am not unjust. Adulterers. I thank you that I'm not an adulterer. Or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That prayer of thanksgiving that he was not like other men, God was not pleased with that prayer. Why wasn't he? Because he was like other men. He was like other men. He just failed to see it. What does righteousness look like? It understands, first of all, that the only difference between us and the most wicked is the grace of God. The grace of God. And in reality... There's no difference. The scripture says, if you look upon a woman to lust, in your heart you've committed adultery. We may have not done the act, but we may have experienced the pleasure or the desire. The scripture says, to call a person a fool is the same as murdering an individual. It comes from the same place in the heart. That desire to see someone dead, that desire to harm another individual. Oh, it hasn't reached the full flame, but the spark is the same. What does righteousness look like? First, it's not living our lives by a set of man-made rules. That results in two things. Wearisomeness, because it gets old, and self-righteousness. It results in thinking that we are better than other people. Because we don't do certain things. Because we wear our clothes a certain way. Because we drive a certain kind of car. Or don't, or don't drive a car. Or we do this. Or we don't do that. And I'm just thankful I'm not like those people that do those things. That's not what righteousness looks like. Righteousness is not about a set of man-made do's and don'ts. Righteousness is not about worship any way we, we want to worship. You know, there are syncretistic aspects of worship. We don't take from other religions and bring them into our practice of worship. And included in that is doctrines, teachings understandings of who God is and what God requires. Okay? So we abhor it. We abhor it. Last week, there were some people that just didn't get what I was saying about about false worship, about false doctrine. But to teach 
that Jesus is not born of a virgin is the same as to bring in an altar here and raise it up and have a golden calf and say, Israel, this is your God. To say that Jesus is not born of a virgin is false worship. It is unacceptable to God. And yet, there are people that want to say, well, I'm sure that those people are in there, you know, they have a right heart and, and God will accept this. No, no. God has shown us what is required of us to do justice, to do justice. I started this series. And, you know, I'm wandering around and you may have gotten lost. So let me go back to the beginning. And I said that there are two very different understandings of what righteousness looks like today. There are one group that emphasizes moral purity. And everything is about moral purity. And there is another group that is emphasizing social justice and care for the poor, and care for the needy, and oppression. And I said, the scripture teaches both. And I've been going through passages to demonstrate the scripture teaches both. Justice, social justice, is what God requires of his people. And oftentimes, it's not heard. And all too often, we adopt the way of the world in responding to the evils of this world. We should respond like God. You see, that's ultimately the goal, to reflect the person of God. And you think of these man-made rules, like playing cards, for example. You shouldn't play with cards, or those that have uh, pictures on the cards. Okay? How does that reflect God? How does that show to the world what God is like? Is our perception that God never plays cards? Is that what righteousness looks like? And we forget what the ultimate goal is in showing forth in righteousness. We are trying to reveal to this world the character of God. And that's why in these passages, it keeps coming back to, it is like me. I show justice to the fatherless. I show mercy to the sojourner. I execute justice with mercy. Therefore, we need to execute justice with mercy because we are trying to reflect the glory of God. So we uphold his law, his standard, his righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to live righteously and to 
firmly ground our understanding of righteousness in your word. Lord, help us, help us to shun man-made laws and rules and just hold steadfastly to your word. And may we be as concerned with adding to it as we are from taking from it. And, O Lord, help us to show forth your glory, your praise, your person in the way in which we conduct ourselves. O Lord, help us to be a people of justice. And in executing that justice, may we be a people of mercy and compassion. And in that mercy and compassion, O Lord, may we be humble before you, recognizing that we have been a people that have received mercy and compassion from you. And, O Lord, help us to see that on our own we will never be acceptable to you. May we never feel good about our personal righteousness, for we never can be righteous in your sight. But may that not be a cause of weariness, but may it be a cause of joy and thanksgiving as we acknowledge that in Jesus Christ our sins are forgiven, we enjoy peace with you, and ultimately one day we are going to be in your presence forever and ever. Help us to rejoice in your righteousness. And Lord, lament our sin. But lament it because in that time of our sin, we are not reflecting your glory. We are not demonstrating who you are to the world in which we live. But rather, we are acting selfishly and self-centeredly. And we are projecting the wrong picture and the wrong image of who you are. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.